really excited about this morning's message. Turn in your Bibles to First uh, Timothy chapter six, um, and let me get organized up here. Got my R.C. Sproul's Soul's Quest for God. Okay, got my iPad because I got a lot of stuff to share with you all this morning. Got my sermon outline. And I have my Bible. Um, so this morning we're looking at the subject in our verse-by-verse study through 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're look, our, the title of my message and what we're looking at this morning is Godliness, Contentment, and the Love of Money. What could be more applicable for today? The thing that every human being, every believer struggles with at some point in their life is, 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 is these things. Is what is contentment? What is contentment? Um, Saint uh, uh, Saint Augustine of Hippo in the third century, he said uh, this. This is an early church father. He said, "You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you." When I, when you leave here this morning, I'm, my hope and my prayer as we go verse by verse through this passage is that you have a good, solid biblical understanding of why the love of money can be dangerous, why it is dangerous, and also that you find your contentment in Jesus Christ and that you also understand the importance of godliness, you know, and how we live our everyday life, including how we work. So y'all ready to dig into it? Y'all ready to get into it? First, so turn, if you're not already there, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Let's pray one more time. Father, again, thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at it, um, teach us, instruct us, and let us be encouraged and challenged and transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2 says this. All who are under... The yoke as slaves are to regard their own master as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved. Teach these principles. The first thing I saw as as I read this passage this week and and I was studying it is that opening phrase. The NASB says this, all those who are under a yoke as slaves. And one of the big accusations some people that that know nothing about the Bible will make against the Bible is that it promotes slavery. That it promotes slavery. And it's just simply not true. It's just, it's just simply not true. But, but he has this phrase in verse 1. It says, all who are under slavery in the sense that we know it in America and the evil that took place several hundred years ago. But in verse 1, he says, all who are under the yoke as slaves. See, in the ancient Roman Greco world, there were slaves. But the first thing you need to understand this morning is that it was not like what comes to our mind today. Today, when people hear the word slavery and they hear the word, they see the word slave, um, the first thing they think about is they think about people that are kidnapped and forced into labor. And that was a very wicked, evil practice 
that took place in the early years in the United States and, and, and is condemned and is evil and, 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 and is wrong. It's a very bad practice. But it's not what was taking place back in the first century. I want to read to you, I want to give you a summary of what uh, James Jeffers said. James Jeffers is a scholar who wrote the book, uh, The Greco-Roman World. And this is what uh, Dr. James Jeffers says about first century slaves. The, some, translate, some of your translations will say servants. Some of your translations will say um, bond servants. But anyway, 60% of the population would be classified under this group of people. People were slaves, one, because of their debt. You know, back in the first century, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. You couldn't go to the bank and say, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't have no more money. So what they would do is they would become a slave slash bond servant slash servant, and they would work off their debt. That was one reason why people were a bond servant or a slave. Second reason, oh, just a prisoner of war. They were just a prisoner of war. They were captured, and what's the alternative to uh, being a bond servant? It, it would be death. So people served as, um, as these servants, as these bond servants by prisoner of war. And some of the people just simply um, served as a slave, as a bond servant. Uh, they did it voluntarily. They did it voluntarily because they could not support themselves. They could not support themselves. And this, what beca- this is what became known as, in the first century, a bond servant. A bond servant. And we see that phrase used, used often in the New Testament, where Paul talks about his relationship to God. He was a bondservant. A bondservant is one who served their master willingly and thankfully and, and, and gratefully. Today, this would be, um, today this would be like the modern-day workforce. We have no choice. We have debt, therefore we have to go to work. So really what the apostle is getting to here in verses 1 and 2 is he's talking about how we um, deal with our supervisors, how we deal with our bosses, how we deal with those who work for who we work for. And the principles here in verses one and two, the first one is found in verse one, where he says, "Regard your own masters as worthy of all honor." And then and in verse two, one and two, it tells us what there. It says, "Be respectful and serve them." In other words, be the very best employee you can. Make it your goal and your aim to serve the Lord even at your place of work. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So how do we today in 2019 put these principles that we see in verse 1 and 2 into practice? First off, work hard. Work hard. Do your very best at your place of employment. You know, your goal in your job is to honor Christ. It's for, it's for people to say, wow, he's a Christian. He really works hard. And if that's how Christians work, I want to hire more of those. That's what you want people to see. You want to, you want to represent Christ to your coworkers. There's many people that in your workplace that you work with that will never don the door of a church. They'll never don the door of a church. And our job in our workplace And that place that you spend Monday through Friday is to shine the light of Christ. You know, Christianity doesn't uh, begin and end on Sunday morning. It's throughout the week. And so we should um, represent Christ to our coworkers. Guys, this is godliness. This is practical, everyday living for the Lord. It's taking Jesus into the workplace and, and being a light, being an encouragement 
letting, letting Christ shine through you, his love, his truth, his grace, his forgiveness. That's what Paul is telling these bond servants in the first century. Hey, wherever you're at in life, whatever you're doing, our goal is to spread the gospel. Our goal is to win people to Jesus. And that even talks about your supervisors. Verse, and then verse 2, he says, even believers who have masters that are Christians. You know, it was, it was a very common scene in the first century for a master and a servant to be sitting side by side in church together. And not with no animosity, but loving one another and being there for each other. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about. This is our godliness, guys, is, is, is how we live our life Monday through Friday and in the workplace. And that's the point of verses 1 and 2. Now, when we get to verse 3, um, he changes subjects. The, the, um, the letter, this epistle, 1 Timothy, especially chapter 6, these are like final remarks from the apostle to, to, um, to Timothy. He's like, they're like bullet comments. It's like he gives three verses, then he changes subjects. Then he gives, and he just keeps on changing subject. And the next subject he's going to talk about, starting in verse 3, is false teachers. False teachers. One, one of the biggest lies today is that there are no false teachers. We're all just singing kumbaya, and everybody in the religious world is just all getting along, is all together in one accord. But folks, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Scripture tells us when it comes to the subject of false teachers. The Apostle Paul, expli- on, the, on, the, on the beaches of Malatos, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, as the Apostle is, is weeping and saying his farewells with the Ephesian elders, listen to what Paul says to them in Acts chapter 20, verses 27 through 31. Um, Paul says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves, here it is, guys. I know that Paul says to him, I know that after I leave, I'm heading to Jerusalem, that these savage wolves will come in among you and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise, and here it is, they will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So Paul clearly warns that in latter times, after he's gone, that, that, that wolves will come in. False, false teachers will, will, will come in. And then verse 31, he says, And be on your guard. Be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Do you hear Paul's earnest heart cry? He's telling them elders and he's telling these pastors, man, guard the church. Guard the church. Protect the flock because false teachers will come in. And now as we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at, bring, I want to bring your attention, look at verse 3 in your Bible. He's, he's going to talk about these false teachers. Actually, he's going to talk about the false teachers in verses 3 through 5. And they can be broken down into four categories. The first is their doctrine in verse 3, their mind and life in verse 4, and then finally in verse 5, their pursuit. So let's take a look at it, and we're dissecting what the Word of God says concerning a false teacher. The first characteristic of a false teacher is found in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. He says, if anyone advocates 
a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrines conforming to godliness. So the first sign of a false teacher is they bring a different doctrine than the Bible. In layman terms today, it means their teaching is not biblical. Their, their teaching is not biblical. If you hear someone teaching or preaching something that clearly goes against the Bible, then that's false teaching. You know, it could be in the area of Christology and who Jesus is. You know, we firmly hold to everything the New Testament says. He was the sinless lamb of God. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, suffered and died on the cross, rose from the grave. We hold to those truths, and we don't bend on them because the Scripture doesn't bend on them. We stand where, 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 where God's Word stands. We don't bend on the authority of Scripture. It is the authoritative Word of God. We don't bend on the sufficiency of Scripture. It is everything you need for life and godliness. And don't let anybody tell you anything else, man. That book you've got in your hand, it will take you the course. It will take you through life. It will guard you. It will protect you. It will keep you safe. The Holy Spirit will speak through that Bible that you're holding in your hands. It's what guards us and protects us. But notice in verse 3, the, the false teacher here, it says, if anyone advocates, that word advocate is like a legal term that you would hear in a court of law. It's like they, they advocate against the word of God. This isn't somebody that's confused or somebody that, that, that's not sure. This is they intentionally stand against the truth of Scripture. So that's the first sign that Paul gives us here in verse 3 is the false teacher's doctrine. The second one is the, uh, his mind. Let's look at his mind. Look at the first half of um, verse 4. First half of verse 4. And I'm, I'm going I'm to speed this up a little bit, and then I'm going to explain to you why this is important when it comes to your godliness. Because most of you guys love the Bible and want to be solid in your faith. So I'm going to speed this up, and then I'm going to explain to you why it's important when it comes to your godliness. So verse 4, it talks about his mind. It says he is conceited. That word conceited means he's puffed up. He, he has an overinflated view of himself. This person is conceited. A person that's conceited, what is it about them? They like to be the center of attention. They like to be the center of attention. It says he, under, verse 4, and understands nothing. That's what it says. He says he understands nothing. He has no spiritual understanding when it comes to the truth of God. And then verse 4, continuing, he says, has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about his words. This false teacher in his mind, according to the text, you know, he likes to wrangle. He likes to wrangle. He likes to be argumentative. Um, he has an ax to grind. Continuing in verse 4. Verse 4, uh, now we're going to talk about his life, the fruit of the, of the false teacher's life. In verse 4, it says there, halfway through verse 4, it says, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicion. This is talking about what the false teachers, this person is, is easy to identify, okay? This ain't something that you, you have to go hunting for. It's, it's very obvious by the way he lives, the way he thinks, what he preaches. Uh, but it says their life is filled with envy. Envy means to uh, be filled with jealousy of others. They're envious of all the other people. They're filled with strife. Strife means quarreling, fighting, unable to get along. Abusive language, self-explanatory. Uh, the Bible says, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
and you will know them by the words that they speak with their abusive language. Evil suspicions. These false teachers, they're surrounded by controversy. They're surrounded by controversy, and, and they're surrounded by suspicion, according to that word there in verse 4, evil suspicion. And then the final characteristic of a false teacher is found in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5 is the false teacher's um, pursuit. It says, in constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth, who suppose, here it is, here's his goal, godliness is a means of gain. The true motive of a false teacher is money, is money. He's got the Tom Cruise syndrome. Remember that movie where he's a sports agent? And he's on the phone, show me the money. That's what the false teacher's for. You know, um, they're, they're, they're consumed with getting rich and this this false teacher that's being described in chapter six is there's no genuine care for the body you know as a pastor as a teacher as a leader you know money is not the focus money will never be the focus at calvary chapel irmo the focus at calvary chapel irmo will be jesus christ and building you up to know him and for you to go out and live for him and to build your marriages and to be godly marriages that's that that's that's the goal pursuit of, a, of an authentic leader is we want to help people. We're here to help you. We're here to help you in every way we can. We're not after your wallets. You know, giving to the Lord is between you and God, and that's an act of worship. Now, I love this. Okay, well, hold on. How does it pertain to godliness? I posted this on Facebook this morning. How does... Um, your, how does false teaching and understanding who false teachers are and what it, what it says, how does that pertain to your godliness? I, um, camera, here it is. I posted this on Facebook this morning, so if you go on my Facebook page, you'll see this. But Mark Cahill uh, posted this on Facebook this morning. He says this. Uh, he says, you cannot be a follower of God that you want to be without a thorough understanding of God's word. If you do not soak your mind in his word, your growth will be stunted. If you don't eat the right foods, drink clean water, and breathe enough air, you will die physically. The same is true spiritually. Without a healthy diet of God's word, Mark Cahill says in his post that I shared this morning, you will waste away into a frail representation of what Christianity really is. Junk food might be edible, but it is void of nutrition your body needs. Same with spiritual junk food, false teaching. It has the appearance of substance, but it can ruin your fellowship with Jesus. Feed, here it is, guys, godliness. You understanding the importance of the word of God and it being a part of your life. He says, feed on the pure milk of the word. Move on to solid meat and stay away from strangled meats, the pollution of idols and the fornicating with the hollow and empty philosophies of the world dressed in Christian garb. Guard what has been entrusted to you and give the truth out to others to protect them. Warn them about the wolves that nip at the hills of the flock. Your resting place, here it is, I love this. Please go on Facebook and check it out. He said, Mark says, your resting place is in the word of God alone. Seek the Lord's face through truth each and every day 
so that you and those around you can stay strong in the faith. And then he quotes 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It's very important that you have a daily time, spend time in God's word. This is what grows us. This is what protects us. This is what guides us. This is what will keep you away from false teaching. And this is what will keep you from corrupting your mind and corrupting your heart. It's just studying, uh, studying the word of God. Amen? Amen? Very important. Very important that we understand that. Now, I love this. We just finished verse 5 as you're following along with us in the text. I love this. It's like at verse 6, Paul pauses. Because Paul's teaching, uh, he's telling Timothy about the false teachers that are going to come in. And he's warning of what they're going to be like. And now it's like Paul stops in the middle of his sentence. And and he he addresses the true Christian living. He he addresses the believers. Look at verse 6. He says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by, what does it say there? contentment. What is godliness? First off, let's talk about these words here. What is godliness? Godliness is conforming our will to his will. That's what godliness is. It's it's, it's conforming our will to his. It's loving God more than anything. And you love him so much that it causes your life and the fruit of your life to be changed and to be a wholehearted follower of him. Walking in obedience Walking walking in obedience. That's what godliness is. And then contentment. What is contentment? He talks about, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by, it says there in the text, contentment. What is contentment? Contentment for you is when Christ is all satisfying. Is when he is everything, man. He doesn't fill up part of you. He fills up all of you. You find your joy in him. You, you find your contentment in him. There's, uh, contentment means there's nothing more important. There's nothing more important. And that's, where we're, that's the place that we want to be. That's the, place that, that's the place that we want you to move towards, is to be completely content in life because you have Jesus Christ. And that he fills you up. The quote I gave earlier from... Um, St. Augustine of Hippo, he said it well. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts is restless until it finds its rest in you. You know, we could search for all eternity long. We can search this world, but nothing, nothing fills us like Jesus. Nothing brings us contentment. 1992, I got saved, and I went to the Christian bookstore, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. I found it this week. It was on my bookshelf, and I had to brush off the, uh, the dust. But I purchased this book in 1992. It's been on my shelf ever since then. And it's R.C. Sproul's. R.C. Sproul's, The Soul's Quest for God. The Soul's Quest for God. And I want to read to you what challenged me. I want to read to you an excerpt from R.C. Sproul's, The Soul's Quest for God, that I read the first year of my Christianity. R.C. Sproul says this. He starts off, he says, something is missing. Something is missing. It is missing from the life of the church. 
It is absent from the normal Christian life. What is missing is the depth of spiritual communion with God. Worship for most is unsatisfying to the multitudes, and the Christian life is often marked more by a sense of the absence of God than a vital sense of his presence. And listen to what he says. He's going deeper. He's talking about church, and he's talking about individuals. He says, R.C. says, There is a spot deep within our souls that is hungry and not being fed. There is a place in our hearts that is thirsty and no one gives us to drink. There is a naked corner in our spirits that no one offers to clothe. You ready for this? R.C. says, Yet it is the work of Jesus to what? Feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, and to cover the naked. That's what R.C. says. He does, and, he, and he says, he does not fail. Jesus does not fail in these endeavors. He is able to provide physical and spiritual food for us as he was for the 5,000 that he fed. As he was able to give living water to the woman at the well. As he was able to clothe the man, the demoniac, in, in, in the guardians. Jesus has not changed, folks. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same thing he did for those people is the same thing that he'll do for us. R.C. continues, he says, Jesus has not changed, nor has he moved and failed to supply a forwarding address. We are the ones who have moved. You and I have moved. David has moved. Probably you have moved too. We neglect him in his word and wonder. We neglect him in his word and wonder why we are hungry, thirsty, and naked. And then he says, Christ has promised. This is the promise of Christ. He has promised that all who seek him will surely find him. But, as R.C. points out, we must seek him. We must seek him. You must go after the Lord. You must pursue him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like that woman at the well. Are you? Christ offers you living water. Christ offers you that same living water that he offered that woman at the well in John chapter 4. Maybe you're like the 5,000. Maybe you're like the 5,000 and you need provision. You're here, God, I need you to physically provide for me in life. I don't know, family, finances, whatever physical thing that you need in this world. He is able to provide. He is able to provide. He is able, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he is able to make provision. Or maybe you're in the throes of chaos. You're in the throes of chaos. Maybe you're here and you're going through spiritual warfare. And I know there's a lot of people that are. As I was thinking about this, man, I was like, it's just so much was coming to me. But maybe you're in the throes of chaos and spiritual warfare. If any of these categories, if you fit into any of these categories, here's, my de- here's the deal. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Put your hope in him. Have you found it? Have you found that provision? That being in Christ Let him be all, let him fill your heart. Let him be the one that makes you content. Don't let it be our money or our jobs or our work or our family or whatever. 
Let Christ be all in all. Let him fill your heart with contentment. Walk out in life filled with joy because he, 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 he brings contentment. He brings contentment. He fills our soul. He fills our soul. I remember, man, I was like, you know, I was new to this Christianity thing, and I didn't have all my doctrine and my theology in order, but I'd experienced something. I'd experienced this forgiveness of sin and this new life, and I said, by golly, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to take it by the reins, and I, I, I want to I go wholeheartedly after you, Lord. And you know what? He met me there, and he will meet you there. When you, when you go with reckless abandonment and say, God, I'm, I'm coming after you, Lord. I want to humbly follow you. Help me in this area of godliness and in this area of contentment. Look at verse 7. Let's continue. Verse 7. Wow, this is a very sobering verse. It brings us back to reality, back to life, back to reality. It says, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either you know as I was looking at this verse and pondering it you know the thing that kept coming to my mind is if for me that I was examining myself and I ask you to examine yourself what is that thing you cling to what is that thing that you hold to in life there's good things in life to cling to there's good things to hold to there's also bad things but what is that thing that brings you the most contentment the, the thing that that keeps your motor going what is that thing that you cling to we need to be reminded that there's only one thing that we're going to take into eternity. There's only one thing you can take into eternity, and that's your soul. That's your soul. And that's just a, that's a reminder of reality, the truth, of the brevity of life. And the one thing that we can take into eternity is our soul. So even in this life, in the here and now, we need to make sure our souls are filled, filled with Jesus doesn't mean we don't love our job. I, 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 I've enjoyed working for many years. I enjoy my family. Uh, I, I enjoy hanging out with friends and going, doing sporting events. But deep down in my soul, the ultimate thing that I, that I care most about is my relationship with Christ and making sure that my soul is filled because I know there's only one thing I can take into eternity, and that's my soul. Verse 8, the apostle continues Look at verse 8. He says, For we have food and covering. With these we shall be content. You know, there, there's benefits. There's benefits of contentment in Christ. There's a huge benefit that, that, um, that we can experience when we place him first. One is joy and happiness. You know, we need that in this world. In a, in a chaotic world with all the stuff that's going on, there's nothing we need more important than joy and happiness. We need to cut off the news networks. We need to shut down the social media feeds. We need to focus on Christ. And Because, man, if you're watching all the social media stuff and all the news and Fox and MSNBC and seeing all, man, it'll, it'll produce turbulence. And, and, and it messes and it creeps its way into our family and it creeps its way into our mind and it creeps its way into our hearts. And we need to close that off for a season and say, Lord, you fill me because I want um, the benefits of contentment, which is joy and happiness. Joy and happiness. That's a good thing to have, right? Yeah, yeah let's have it. You know, when we, have when, we, when, we, 
when we have contentment in Christ, uh, our hearts will search no more. Our hearts will search no more. All of a sudden, there's just, there's just like this confidence in life. There's just like, I have found the real deal. I have found the real deal. I have found the, the spring of living water that nothing else can touch. And that's the Lord in my life. That's what brings contentment. So we want to walk in godliness and how we live our life going out into the world as Christians. And then we want to find our contentment, not in our family, not in our work, but our contentment is in Christ. Now let's look at these final two verses that we're looking at this morning. Final two verses I want to look at is um, verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 says, uh, and Paul, Paul here is dealing with, this is where we talked about the love of money. This is where he addresses the love of money. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So there's a warning here, guys. There's a warning in Scripture to all of us of, um, what, is, what, what, what is the warning? Do not make money your pursuit. Again, you know, if you're open to the TV and the news and the social media, you know, there's this, there's this pursuit for, for wealth and money. And, and, and what the scripture is telling us here is we do not make money our top pursuit in life. Now, do we need to go out and make good money? Yes. We need to provide for our family. You know, I like to make sure that we have enough income to provide for our family, to give to the Lord, to go out to Zoe's Kitchen and, 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 and go to our other favorite restaurants. And I, we like to go there often, I say. <laughs> but, but, but we don't make money our top priority. And, and Jesus said in Luke 22, excuse me, Luke 12, 15, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. So even Jesus said before Paul saying this, he says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You know, greed, is, that's, that's, that's just that inner desire. I want it and I'm going to have it because I want it for myself. That's what greed is. It's like, it's an all out, I'm going to get it no matter what it takes. I'm going to step on people. Either I'm going to get stepped on or I'm going to step on them. But in greed, I'm going to step on them. Psalms chapter 62 verse 10 says, uh, Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God causes the increase. And there's nothing wrong with being a millionaire. If you're a millionaire, praise the Lord. Or if you make 100000 a year, praise the Lord. Glory to God. But keep it in perspective. Keep it in perspective and use godly wisdom when it comes to managing your money. There's no problems at all with, with being rich. There's no problems at all being rich. But when we're driven by money, wealth, and riches, you know what that sin is called? It's called idolatry. When it, when it drives you, what drives us, Christian? The Holy Spirit. What drives us is Jesus. And we, we make money the money we make, we, we, we make it serve, the, serve our purposes, serve the Lord's purposes. You know, it, it doesn't control us. We control it. And then it says there, 
that it plunges men into ruin and destruction. You know, I kept thinking about um, some examples of how watching people go after money and how it's wrecked their life. And I thought of so many, but as, 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 as I was looking at this and I was going to present it this morning, I'm sure you have examples in your mind. You know people who've, who, have, who have went wholeheartedly after money and wealth and going after these get-rich-quick schemes. And what does it do? Same thing as verse 9 says. It plunges men into ruin and destruction. That's what it does. Then he continues in verse 10. He says, this is a very, very important verse here because, you know, money's not evil, okay? Money's a good thing. Money can be used to do great things. So let's look at verse 10. He says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You know, we must be disciplined. We must be disciplined in our use of money and its God-ordained purposes. And notice what verse 10 says. It does not say that money is the root of all evil. It does not say that. What does it say? The love of money. The love of money. The, the Paul here is talking about you know, um, that person who that's their goal in life is, is just riches, is just to get rich, you know. Um, again, there's nothing wrong with making money. Go out and make lots of money, but use it wisely. Use it wisely. You know, when I think about money and the Christian, you know, the, th- the things that come to my mind is, is what, what can I say to you this morning about your money? And here's, here's what I would encourage you. Use wisdom. Use wisdom before you write that check. Use wisdom before you make that investment. Use wisdom um, before you do whatever you do with your money. <laughs> you know, use it wisely. Use it wisely. In closing, looking at verse 10, ways that we use wisdom uh, in managing our finances. Number one is we have, to, we have to provide for our family. You know, we have to work first off. You know, you, you, have, to, you have to work because that's a commandment of the Lord. Is, is to go out and work. You know, the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So anyway, we work. Number two, we provide for our family. And number two, you save. You know, it's very biblical and very uh, wise to save and invest for the future. Invest for the future. Invest for your children. You know, that's very biblical. You know, save that nest egg for a rainy day. Things could go south, and you may need to reach back into savings to help you out. Good biblical give to the local church give to the lord you know um ray comfort says that uh giving is the final frontier of god in the life of the christian you know um a believer gives their life to the lord they they grow in their love for him they grow in their discipleship and then one of the final things that a christian does is he makes a commitment to start giving to the lord and that's that's very important to support the local church and you know it it cost in the first century it costs today and then our job as church leadership is to manage those funds to support the ministry that's taking place. So it's very biblical. You know, I, I'll never forget 1992 at Bethel Temple. I'll never forget writing that first tithe check. And I gave it. And I left there with goosebumps. I was like, wow, I'm a part of this. I'm supporting this. It was a wonderful feeling, a wonderful feeling. And it was being obedient to the Lord. And then ultimately, when it comes to us managing money 
in, in using godly wisdom is uh, just need the overall general principle umbrella is you need to use wisdom in how you spend your money. And that's between you and the Lord and not me. <laughs> you know, use, use wisdom in, in how we spend our money. You know, God holds us accountable for everything we do in life, including how we manage our money. And for young people, you know, that's very important. You know, I'm talking with a couple here in the church, you know, maybe the first of the year, um, January, February time frame, we may do a Dave Ramsey class. Do a Dave Ramsey class. Me and Irene went through Dave Ramsey class uh, 2004-2005-ish and um, we got completely 100% out of debt with the exception of our home mortgage and it was because for 10 or 12 years we did what Dave Ramsey said. We followed his principles for emergency funds, low funds and it was really really great and it's very liberating to um, not let money be the driving force in your life. And if you're there, you know, I just want to pray for you, encourage you, you know, seek the Lord and, and, and just use wisdom. Come up with a plan. Go to someone you trust, um, maybe someone that's smart in finances, and, and ask for uh, encouragement, ask for accountability, for them to help you in that area of life. Um, I wanted to stop at verse 10 because uh, the second half of First uh, Timothy chapter 6 is loaded. It is loaded with um, the most important piece of knowledge in the universe. The, mo- the most important thing a person can know in this life is found in verses 11 to the end of this chapter. So I want to say that, but just looking at the message this morning, I want to pray for you guys. I want to pray for you, and I, and I hope you take these principles home and apply these things to walk in godliness, to, to commit your life to doing life as a godly believer. And then ultimately, as R.C. Sproul's talked about in his book, is I want you to find your contentment in Christ. I want you to leave here saying, Lord, you are enough. You are everything to me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for um, giving us the tools for godliness. Thank you for giving us um, your Holy Spirit to help us walk in godliness. Father, it's not by our own power or our own strength, but it's by your spirit, Lord. And Father, I pray Father, that everyone here this morning, that they will find their contentment in you and that you will fill their hearts with joy unspeakable as they love you, trust you, and find their contentment in you. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.